Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. of the Podium and Panel podcast. Today we're going to cover three recent oral arguments, two at the Supreme Court and one before the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, all involving COVID-19 issues. This is COVID week on the podcast. The first case is Verbeen Corp versus Strathmore Insurance Company, the first highest state court to consider business, business interruption in COVID-19. We've talked a lot about the courts of appeals at the federal level and some intermediate appellate courts including Indiana, but this is the first uh, to actually hear uh, COVID-19 and business interruption at the highest state court level. The next two cases... In other words, this is where it gets serious. Right, exactly. The, ga- the game is afoot. It's, this has all been... All this other stuff has been preliminary. It now is. is where the rubber meets the road. That's correct. And the next two cases are National Federation of Independent Business versus Department of Labor and Ohio versus Department of Labor two SCOTUS cases addressing Biden administration COVID-19 vaccine mandates that were heard uh, on a rocket docket basis on Friday of last week. Let's turn to our- hey, don't case. tell Justice Sotomayor that these were a vaccine, that the, that there was a vaccine mandate. <laughs> well, she, she, she was, uh, she was like a dog with a bone. That's not a vaccine mandate. It's not a vaccine mandate. <laughs> Yeah, well, a lot of a lot of the justices were pretty strident in what they weren't saying. So we'll, that that we'll get to that. We'll get to that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so let's turn to our first case, and as our LinkedIn friend Laura Gregory, who's out on the uh, Northeast, um, covers some of uh, Massachusetts wrote last week on this uh, Vervine case, Vervine. The Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court will be the first state Supreme Court to hear an argument on this issue. The decision in Bravine Corp versus Strathmore Inc. insurance will determine Massachusetts law on this issue. The Supreme Judicial Court's decision will not only determine whether insureds are entitled to business interruption coverage for COVID-related government shutdown orders, but also the meaning of direct physical loss for the future. Direct physical loss is commonly used in numerous types of first-party property coverages, such as commercial property, business owners, and homeowners policies. And thus, the case law regarding its meaning and application will impact on future claims for property losses under numerous types of policies. Additionally, it appears that the Supreme Judicial Court will also address the virus exclusion, as we can anticipate more virus exclusions being included in policies in the future. This could impact on application of existing virus exclusions and on drafting future virus exclusions for Massachusetts policies. To date, all Massachusetts decisions, both at the state and federal level, have found no coverage in these cases, and all federal decisions nationally on these issues have found no coverage. Uh, That's, I think, a little bit of an overstatement. As Pat and I have talked about, only motions to dismiss that are granted got moved up, but uh, in any event, it's, it's relatively true. Many are watching this decision. The Supreme Judicial Court received a number of amicus briefs representing both insurance industry parties and insureds. She asked LinkedIn, what do you think the court will decide? Uh, as Pat said, this is where, where the rubber starts to meet the road. State appellate courts are starting to land on these issues. We expect them to follow the federal court's lead, 
uh, will they find coverage in some or all circumstances? Will it depend on the states and how they interpret various things? What will be the result of the states finding that there is coverage? If that happens, we can anticipate future restrictions on the availability of business interruption insurance in the marketplace, as well as revisions to the policies. Pat, with that kind of background, why don't you tell us about oral arguments in this case? Thanks, Dan. And boy, is the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court a hot bench. My goodness. Uh, the advocates could barely get a word in edgewise as the judges argued, justices argued with both each other and with the advocates. Um, That's a true statement, very much. From, from, I mean, just, it was, it was, it wasn't uncivil in any regard, not, not at all, but it was aggressive uh, as the justices tried to get their points out on where they stood and, and trying to really probe and at the advocates. Um, I, I think the most important question is the threshold question in all of these cases. And one of the justices, uh, you know, got right to it, which was the language is here, direct physical loss or damage to property. And one of the justices said that's in the disjunctive direct physical loss in that construction doesn't apply to damage. It only applies to loss. And that just, I, I th that can't be what it says because direct physical loss, because that's before the disjunctive, right? Then what does, what is direct physical loss to what? Well, it's to property that's on the other side of the disjunctive. It can't be that the disjunctive only flows one way. It only goes backward to the two property goes to loss, but the direct physical loss doesn't go over the disjunctive to modify damage. It's direct physical loss or damage meaning direct physical loss modifies both i i can't imagine any other reading um being employed that makes grammatical sense uh yes it's in the disjunctive but that's not sometimes a disjunctive isn't disjunctive sometimes it's one of the these two things there are two different things the courts have repeatedly held loss is dispossession complete destruction you know you don't have it anymore damage is the property is uh, altered in some way. It is, you know, it's got, it, it, but then it can get repaired, which brings us to the restor the period of restoration discussion, which we've talked about. Uh, we talked about it in the, um, uh, or we will talk about it in connection with the Indiana Repertory Theater case, yep. where that was one of the bases for the court to say it doesn't make any sense. But the difference was in this case, there was an endorsement on the period of restoration that may that expanded it to be the shorter of three options one of which was a year and apparently counsel for the insurers had misquoted the language in their right. brief they, uh and he conceded that yeah yeah he put a period because they didn't go they didn't include the endorsement uh so not a concession you want to have to make at that point but he you know did the right thing and conceded the point um the uh, so, so that, that, that's a, we'll see how that plays out. Um, the cases they kept bringing up, there were a series of cases. So there was asbestos, there were car, there was carbon monoxide. There was, uh, the most, the one that smoke. got the most attention, I think was the smoke at the Oregon Shakespeare festival. Yes. So this is a state court opinion. I, I want to say either an appellate intermediate level appellate court opinion, or perhaps the Supreme Court of Oregon, 
that held there was coverage because there were wildfires coming into an out, uh, presumably an outdoor uh, presentation of Shakespeare. Uh, and so they had to shut down and the court's like, well, that didn't, the smoke didn't change anything. And the counsel for the insurer had to concede that that's a bit, that that case is a bit different, you know, disfavorable, but also pointed out that that decision has been criticized and, um, and, and not, does not been the law, at least in Massachusetts. We'll see if that, uh, how that case influences, if at all, the, the decision here. The other one is one of the justices pressed on the on the carbon monoxide case. And, you know, you open up the windows and out goes the carbon monoxide. And just as out goes the virus or you wipe it off. So how is this not like that? Uh, so, you know, does it actually alter the property uh, in, in that way? Uh, so we'll see how they they deal with that. There was one of our other LinkedIn friends, uh, Ryan Maxwell, posted a bingo card. Uh, of of this argument with all the terms that got used. And I think that bingo card got filled up because all I the did. things he was talking about all got filled up or got mentioned rather asbestos, CO2, uh, you know, direct physical loss and, and, and so forth. The other thing that was interesting in this opinion, and, and it did, so there's a procedural point here. I, this is the second argument that I've watched from the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts or better, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. And that is, they they uh, have they don't have a rebuttal, so Which the appellant odd. goes for the appellant goes first, then the appellee, and then it's over. No no rebuttal. Uh, and this case, what you had was there was a there was another advocate who had two minutes at the very end, and who'd he have? He had the broker, right. because the plaintiff insured here was a restaurant group of three restaurants. And two of them were sold a policy without a virus exclusion, and one was sold a policy with the virus exclusion. The leading case did not have a virus exclusion. And I think universally in policies where there has been a virus exclusion, the insured is out of luck. Right. Uh, but and so there was a negligence claim against this brokers. Why did you allow a virus exclusion in this one policy? Let's just say the broker's argument didn't come up at all during the main argument or during the argument of the appellant, the insured. Uh, and so he didn't get to respond to the arguments of the broker who only had two minutes at the very end. And of course, his argument is this isn't covered in any event. You had no damage as a result of any negligence. And we weren't negligent uh, right. at all. Another thing that came up quite a bit, I'd be remiss if we didn't mention it, was how this complaint was pled. There was a real discussion about whether they thought that the virus was present on the property or not. And ultimately, they pressed on counsel for the insurer who finally conceded. It doesn't matter if it was present or not. There wasn't direct physical loss or damage as a result of this virus being present, if it were, but they didn't plead that it was. Um, I think the justices are trying to find a way that they don't just send this thing back for the plaintiff to plead that it was there, present, uh, how they prove such a thing, one only knows, but prove that it was present and then find that there was coverage as a consequence. So I think they're trying to avoid a kind of ridiculous kabuki theater type result should that happen. Um but a very important uh, argument, there's another one before the Ohio uh, State Supreme Court on February 8th that we've got on the calendar. Uh, so we'll see. That'll be, I believe, the second one, but we'll see. And then something else came up at this argument that apparently the First Circuit certified a question. I was right. unaware of that. Um, I, I couldn't find the question that they certified or to which court they certified it to. 
Um, so we'll see what happens there. Uh, Massachusetts is in the is in the first circuit, but it doesn't sound like it was the first circuit or the Massachusetts to which the question was certified, or if the highest court of whichever state that was accepted the question. I doubt there was enough time for them to have done so yet. So the uh, th there's um, so that's that's I think covers the waterfront on that argument. Uh, Dan, did did I miss anything? Just a couple other things, you know. I think sure. Uh, I, th I think Laura and some others, you know, said that the insurer council didn't necessarily really hit a home run here. Um, one thing I think that was a weak uh, that, that that kind of weakens the argument and makes this coverage what, what would be covered was the question of Legionnaires' disease and and the, the justices pressed and the insurer said yeah if if if, if this exclusion's on Legionnaires' disease is not covered. I think the other thing that that he said and that that uh, you know this period of restoration what he said about the what about the virus and i was thinking about this is he said well a couple of days right you can open the windows and clean it and it's gone in a couple of days but if this is a virus that's constantly in the air and and, and it's constantly coming back you know I, I i think if this does go back the insured can make the argument look even if it was every couple of days three days you can clean it out and it's gone and there's no more harm as soon as you start again you close the windows and do it again there's three more days of restoration, right? You know, so I just think. But, uh, but I think the problem with that is that, number one, it doesn't actually damage the property. But more importantly, as insurers council pointed out, the property continued to be used. Well, it continued to be used as, as carry out. And I understand the insurance argument is, well, that was to mitigate our damage. You know, but, we, we were trying to make sure we didn't lose more than we had to. But we've talked about this before too, Pat, that the smoke doesn't alter the, the property it, it's just a clean out carbon monoxide ammonia so it's the same type of argument in those cases right i think so if oregon the smoke the smoke doesn't change anything you don't have to restore the property you clean it you might have to do some disinfectant so it's a similar type of argument i'm just saying for purposes of an insured you know it, it just does that there's well, some I, I, there. I i well i i smoke in an outdoor venue like the Shakespeare Theater, I, I, I might, I, I kind of, I take your point, but let's suppose it was smoke damage in an interior uh, location where you had curtains or you had, uh, you had cloths, chairs, or you had, you know, smoke damage to the property itself. I mean, you could have smoke that did physical damage to the property. Yeah. In, in, in turn, and and a similar thing with carbon monoxide and and uh, ammonia. Um, or, or as it was on the bingo card, cat urine, which it was in that case, yeah. the, you know, the, those do physical, those physically change the property itself. Uh, and carbon monoxide sometimes just doesn't get, it, it has a, the ability to like sit. Yeah. Um, it doesn't move, um, in the same way that other things do. It's, it's heavy apparently. And, and so that's one of the problems. That's one of the dangers of carbon monoxide is it doesn't flow through. It kind of, it's heavy in the air. Yeah. Um, so but, it, it's a bit different, but I take your point. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it, it's a bit different, but again, you can make the same arguments like we talked about the, when the, uh, uh, flash tests were being done in, in 2020 and, and the uh, CDC, right. They, they cleaned it, they did everything. They then turned on the infrared or the ultraviolet and they're still remaining on the, on the, in, in the surfaces and on the, and things, but I get your point as well. I'm just saying that that would be the one argument that that potentially could open a door. So it'll be interesting to see what this court does.
It will be. And and there was some nose counting as well, even though they said, no, we don't want a nose count. It's like, right. well, we got like all these courts that have said it isn't covered. How can we have this inconsistency in what this language says? Uh, I, I, I suppose a state Supreme Court could do whatever it wants. And this one just might. We'll see. It might. All right. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back with the two COVID cases heard by the Supreme Court of the United States this time uh, on Friday. All right. Am I bringing him in here? Yeah. Did it render okay? Oh, I, well, give me a second. Sorry. Good point. Mine's just successfully rendered, but that, again, you get to see if they match. Yeah, I, I I'm. <laughs> I can't. I, I my connect because I'm because of the nature of the connection. Um, I'm not sure. Um, I'm going to reload, which means I may lose you. Okay? Give me a second. Okay.
and segment three of the Podium and Panel podcast, uh, episode 75. And we're going to talk about two rather unusually scheduled Friday arguments before the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, in, in these cases, these deal with the uh, Biden administration's, um, don't call it a vaccine mandate, um, and the uh, that's from the uh, from OSHA, and the other uh, requirement from CMS for healthcare workers, and that is a vaccine mandate. Um, right. In, in these consolidated questions, the issue before the court is whether Supreme Court should stay an OSHA vaccine or testing regime for all businesses with a hundred or more employees. On December seventeenth, the U.S. District Court for the Sixth Circuit in a 2-1 decision ruled in National Federation uh, of Independent Business for the Biden administration upholding the rule that the employers with more than 100 workers could require vaccines or weekly COVID-19 tests uh, for their employers along with masks. The Sixth Circuit noted that given, quote, OSHA's clear and exercised authority to regulate viruses, the agency, quote, necessarily has the authority to regulate infectious diseases that are not unique to the workplace, end quote. The latter case deals with healthcare workers and the rule put in place by the Center Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, otherwise known as CMS, requiring that all healthcare workers at facilities that participate in Medicare and Medicaid programs, that's virtually every single one, yep. uh, be fully vaccinated against COVID-19 subject to any applicable exemptions a worker might have. 26 states sued challenging the rule and federal appellate courts have split on the issue. There is a stay from the Fifth Circuit. So the the Sixth Circuit ruled in favor of the government on the first case and the Fifth Circuit ruled in favor of the states on the second case. So in one case, the government is the appellee. And in the second case, the government is the appellant uh, or petitioner uh, and then respondent. The uh, 11th Circuit found that the Biden administration, a 2-1 decision writing, Healthcare workers have long been required to obtain inoculations for infectious disease, and that mandating vaccines is a quote common sense measure designed to prevent healthcare workers whose job it is to improve patients' health from making them sicker. End quote. The Supreme Court was asked to issue emergency orders in both cases. On December 22nd, the court issued an order quote consideration of the applications for stay presented to Justice Kavanaugh and by him referred to the court is pe- deferred pending oral argument the applications are consolidated and a total of one hour is allotted for oral argument <laughs> funny the arguments lasted nearly three hours and 40 minutes right the applications are set for oral argument on friday <laughs> this january 7th notwithstanding the order the time spent on friday as we said was more more than three hours the not only nearly four and not <laughs> only that the urgency is is that on monday the first rule uh, in OSHA is supposed to begin to begin enforcement. What that means and how that works is a, is a subject of debate between the parties. But yeah. Monday, something begins to happen that looks like enforcement. And so um, that's the that's the urgency here. Something may happen while we're recording, uh, you know, Sunday morning. I doubt it, but one only knows. Dan, why don't you tell us more about this rather unprecedented circumstance? Sure. Thanks, Pat. And uh, one of the things that, you know, when the court went on the rocket docket for the SBA, Texas, again, there was this, you know, at first they didn't take the case and then they didn't issue anything before the the, the implementation of that. So who knows with this, uh, depending on how uh, the courts aligned on these two cases, we may get decisions today, tomorrow, 
It may be later in the week. Who knows, right? It, 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 so, 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 Dan, let me before we get into the substance of this, you've, you've we've referred to the rocket docket. Do yes. we now have three dockets: the ordinary do. docket, the shadow docket, and the rocket docket? We do. We, we do. I, I never thought the Supreme Court could do rocket docket, but they've done it twice this already yeah. in the last what three months. I didn't yeah. know they did that, but apparently they could do rocket docket. <laughs> they don't. They don't do it very often. And, and no. one of the one. I mean, you know, one of the challenges here. Is is that the the case was not traditionally fully briefed as it normally would be? You know, it's an expedited right. briefing process, and and one of the things I think before we go into any substance, Pat, is is there's a lot of uh, late in the week. There's a lot of attacks on on Justice Sotomayor uh, for her statement about a hundred thousand kids in serious trouble and many on ventilators. There was a question about whether Gorsuch said that hundreds of thousands died each year from the flu. Um, Jonathan. Uh, Adler, who, who I follow on LinkedIn and who is a, I, I spoke with on a panel several years ago in, uh, in Texas on the Supreme Court, uh, he wrote an article uh, for Reason magazine uh, that's titled Sloppy Arguments Over COVID Mandates at SCOTUS. And his opening line was, quote, the caliber of questioning by the justices was not up to the usual standards, but the justices seem to understand the two rules at issue present, present different questions. And I think that's the the, the, the punchline here. Um, what, what's really happening here, and Pat, you and I have talked about it pretty extensively with the court here. Uh, th th this case is really hitting on on some levels uh, the administrative state uh, delegation doctrine and the authority of regulatory agencies. We talked last week about the Chevron doctrine uh, and the Becerra case, and there's another case on the docket for February that we'll cover when it comes up. Uh, these cases address, as Pat said, questions of the Biden administration's vaccine mandates, although whether it's their mandates or not, as Pat said, Sotomayor was insistent that it's not a, a mandate. Or said this was the was was not a mandate for viruses. Um, as I mentioned, the justices seem inclined to stop uh, the employer mandate and accept the latter. One of the interesting things with the uh, Jonathan uh, piece that I mentioned earlier is that he mentioned that OSHA may have authority in this in some instances to have uh, rules about uh, employer mandates, but that this one might be too vague and ambiguous and the, and the arbitrariness of selecting employers of 100 or more versus really looking at space and confinement and other factors that could, in fact, what Was be... his point that the rule was too ambiguous or the authorization in the OSHA Act was too ambiguous? That the rule itself was too ambiguous. I see. And, okay. And the, right. the application of the rule itself that this is a, a an emergency, but that that this may be too broad as as applied. Um, okay. So an, an interesting argument. Um, um, the uh, interestingly, last week uh, the Louisiana Supreme Court affirmed uh, the healthcare vaccine mandate in its state. So, and as mentioned, I think that uh, if you listen to these two arguments uh, on the CMS one, I think that the uh, court seemed at least more inclined to find five votes to say that that is, in fact, uh, something that could be implemented. Uh, some interesting things about the actual hearings. Uh, two of the advocates, I've, I'm told, uh, actually uh, tested positive for COVID. Uh, and so kind of kind of just an irony there. Uh, Justice uh, Sonia Sotomayor elected to participate in oral arguments remotely from her chambers. 
Uh, there was some uh, memes and pictures uh, uh, Friday night that that they alleged that Sonia Sotomayor was uh, at dinner with Chuck Schumer and others. It's Chuck Schumer's wife, so that that was uh, uh, removed. There was some attacks on Sonia Sotomayor uh, by folks on social media attacking her eligibility and credibility and and uh, uh, calling her a moron and stuff, which was was pretty wrong. I mean, she did get the thing wrong about the kids in the hospitals and things, but um, uh, or in I, I frankly was less disturbed about that mistake yep. than when she said when she suggested and then corrected herself uh, that the government that the federal government has a police power. Um, and the advocate corrected her and then she she corrected what she meant to say. Yeah. And she plainly doesn't think that the federal government has a police power. But that was the yeah. when she said that I went oh, what now? <laughs> that, this, which 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 is the opposite of what you know, or kind of explains why Louisiana could do what it did is that right. they do have the police power. They can yeah. make you stick a needle in your arm. And and, and again, it, it, in my view, it, it just kind of reiterates that you know that this argument was not as probably as crisp as we see with most things, and it could be because of this whole uh, putting it on the calendar for. Friday, the length of them, who knows? But in any event, there, there was a lot of sloppy questioning, I think, and a lot of kind of corrections that needed to be made. Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh, had, he asked about the major questions doctrine or canon of interpretation, which is nowhere to be found in the Constitution, uh, but it, it's something that the court uses and whether this arises to a major question, and if not, what does? Um, well, there was a there were a ton of questions on that. Gorsuch certainly picked that, up on it uh, and yeah. when it applies. Why don't you tell... Why don't you explain to the audience more about this major questions doctrine? Because it really is it seems to be a creature of administrative state actions. Is is it a major question? That is, does it have to be left to the political branches or the more accountable political branches, I should say? And it's 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 this concept uh, again, almost uh, uh, in some ways in the same kind of column as as Chevron. It's a concept that federal agencies, when, when there's significant regulations uh, that they're implementing, they need congressional approval, not just general approval, like, you know, some vague approval. Uh, th this law for OSHA uh, was implemented 50 years ago. At one point, Chief Justice Roberts said, well, it's closer to the Spanish flu than than to, to this. I mean, it's kind of a kind of a wash or maybe it's closer to this. But in any event, uh, that that's a major questions doctrine. Again, this is kind of this whole thing that we don't want agencies to run amok and create these uh, major uh, issues and, and to your point, police powers or kind of running uh, over every individual in the country uh, on these issues. Uh, one of the one of the, and, and related to the major questions doc doctrine here also was I think Chief Justice Roberts and Gorsuch and, and Kavanaugh and some others. They also raised a question that in this case, COVID nineteen spreads across a wide variety of agencies, and so. Does OSHA have that power? Does CMS? Does you know? Does uh, Health and Human Services? And so this whole discussion as well about how can you give one agency like OSHA such an authority? Uh, there was some questioning uh, by the justices as well uh, that had to do with this question, and I think Alito asked it uh, in particular: uh, is that this regulation uh, and 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 COVID? It's outside the workplace as well. And when we look at OSHA things, OSHA is designed to only relate to the workplace. And that this give thing, the hypothetical that that you, that Alito gave about the wand. 
Yeah, the magic wand. Yeah, I, the magic I, wand. Explain that one to me, because that, that's that was. I, I thought. I mean, he's like, I am not saying something. Well, <laughs> and then yeah. the wand is he trying to make this example of what he's talking about? And, and I, I, I can't give you the exact. Well, so, so what uh, he said is, is that you know, when you get the you get the vaccine, that you have it both at work. That's true, but you also have it outside of work. Right. So. Could the government have a situation where when you came in, they they waved a magic wand over your head and they gave you the vaccine, and then when you left, they took they, it off. They took it off. Yeah. Could they do that? Of course. But yeah. then but they didn't wave it. Could you still let make them leave and they still had the protection? And the and this was a question to uh General Preblogger, the uh yeah. the, the, the solicitor general. She's like, Yeah, we could do that. He's like, Well, how? Because it's leaving the workplace. Right. Um, OSHA has power over the workplace, not me walking down the street or being with my family or anything else. Yeah. Um, so. Although, the, you know, in, in, in this case, I mean, it's, it's kind of one of those questions. It's kind of how, how would you parse that out, right? So, and, and that's anyway, right. You know, I, I think one of the questions, and I think Breyer, with, with his usual long-winded <laughs> things, I think, I think though he raised a good point here is that um, at, at some point soon, this question becomes moot, right? Because, you know, at some point, this virus goes away. You know the the numbers are escalating, but uh, um, you know, as you said, this thing goes into to effect tomorrow. So, um, if 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 you do a stay or not, you know, it, 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 it's relatively at some point this thing's going to go away. Um, uh, I I, uh, I I'm not sure I agree. Um, yeah. The the this the reason my view as to why the questioning was as it was was not lack of preparation. I thought they were, I thought they, uh, they had their questions scripted. Uh, they, they knew what yeah. they wanted to say. And these were the more political they've gotten, uh, this term and especially they've, the more polemical their questions have gotten on both yeah. sides. This is not, this is it not is. pointing the finger at one justice or another. Right. Hardly right. far from it. Right. Uh, justice Kavanaugh has his list. He constantly has lists of right. things. And, and right. justice Sotomayor has her red meat that she, you know, that it, right. we, we, you know, so, and Justice uh, Breyer, it hasn't changed much, but he's got more, there are more facts in there, but in uh. any event, but, but, but in any event, I think this is a broader question about how far these agencies can to go. Yep. Um, this from the very beginning, um, you know, and by the beginning, I mean, March, 2020, this has always been how much can they re can the federal government really do right um and the question that was going through my mind this entire time while i was listening to this if this was such an emergency what took so long right to you know whether you whether you know okay it didn't happen under the trump administration we could argue about that that put that aside well the Bi biden has been in office for you know at the time that this was issued on originally issued on november 5th had been in office for you know, 10 months, 10 and a half months. What, what, yep. what took so long? If this was such an emergency, then that required what this ETS emergency temporary standard, then what at some point this just turns into ordinary, uh, just a, a way of being and stops being anything emergent. Uh, I get that well, this newest yeah. wave has certainly led to, uh, you know, has certainly led to more problems but at some point the emergency has to end yeah no i, I agree with you but I, I do think that that's what probably triggered this is is that we're 
uh, in Omicron and we're, we're at a million, maybe, maybe 2 million a day, 3 million a day soon. And so I, I do think, you know, that, that may have triggered the emergency, but I agree with you. And so but, but this, uh, this was rule was passed in November, uh, was, was issued originally on November 5th, yeah. long before we even heard the word Omicron. Uh, Omicron, think, didn't, Omicron didn't exist then. Maybe. Yeah. Or had just come, just become a thing in South Africa. It certainly hadn't reached the United States by that point. Right. Um, so I, I, I just, I, this is a broader, the, my point is, is that this is a broader effort uh, on both sides to and, either aggrandize power or, or try to put a stop to it. Um, this is, this is a, this is a broader question than simply it, this issue. And in, in some ways, whatever happens here is, is employers are going to do what they're going to do. Citigroup uh, announced that mandatory vaccines, if you don't have vaccines. So, so, you know, employers are going to do what they're going to do for their best interest to, to be able to have a good workforce. And so regardless of what happens with the Supreme court on this, um, there, there will be some companies in some areas that, that continue to have these mandates. So, and like Louisiana and, and like I said, in the CMS, I think the, 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 the more likelihood of, of them finding uh, appropriate use of power would be on the CMS arena, given the healthcare situation. So we'll see. We will, we will see. I, I predicting this is a very dicey proposition, but that brings us to our we predictions. Must. We're going to fold because of, because of uh, uh, technical difficulties, we're folding segment three into segment two. Um, so do you want to do our prediction sure to go wrong for this week, Dan? Sure. Verveen? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I affirmed. <laughs> I think the, I think the, I, I have to say the insurer is going to win because I can't see any other way, but what do you think? I'm going to predict a reversal just because of some sympathy from some of the justices. It's hard to tell. And as you, as you mentioned in one of your posts, this Massachusetts court is not necessarily a traditionally been insurer friendly. So right. I, th I think they may give them another bite at the apple, but I'm, you, you may cut, catch up to me on prediction. Sure to go wrong in this. No, well, right now the gap is, is widening. We'll get to that in right. a minute. Um, so that brings us to the two Supreme Court cases. Can we punt these, please? <laughs> Or do we have I, to predict them? <laughs> I'm going to predict on, on the OSHA one. Okay. I think they're going to they're going to stay uh, the the employer mandate, and I think on CMS they're going to reverse, or or they're going to find that the the CMS is is appropriate. So okay, so now when you say so, there's four decisions they've got to make. Yeah. One is to stay either, and then I mean, if they find a stay in the OSHA case, that's basically predicting, hey, we're gonna. If they're going to stay something, then that's one of the yep. one of the rules is that or one of the the elements is likelihood of success on the merits. Right. Um, so you're predicting revert both reversals on both the stay and the final and the final judgment. Yep. On both cases. Yep. Um, I, I, I I'll go with that. I I, I think that uh, and Justice Breyer repeat he he termed issuing a stay in the in the OSHA case quote unbelievable if right. one were to be issued yeah. uh, because one well, of the other elements is in the public interest and he didn't see how it was in the public interest to issue such a stay. Um, I, I think he's going to lose. The, I, I think he might. And I think that overestimates the ability of the vaccine to prevent transmission. Um, yep. the, the, the vaccines do one thing very well. It seems they prevent severe hospital, severe illness and death. Right. But they don't seem to prevent infection, and they don't seem to prevent transmission. 
So right. I don't, I, I, I'm lost on, I, I, I'm lost on the efficacy in that regard. It has, it has efficacy to be sure. It does. Uh, but, but that efficacy has got to be appropriately appreciated. It isn't like other vaccines that prevent transmission. Um, right. And so that's, it's just a difference. It's got to be, uh, you know, it doesn't have the same externalities that other vaccines do. The externalities in a different dimension of, of hospitalizations. And when you have a virus, the current variant that is so transmissible, it's not as virulent. So you've got more people with it and more uh, perhaps severe illness right. because just the sheer numbers of people contracting it. Right. But that doesn't mean that per person it's as bad depending upon your particular uh, comorbidities, right. uh, be it age or, or other medical condition. So uh, with that, that brings us to our opinions for our, the, our predictions, which I referred to earlier, uh, Indiana Repertory Theater versus Cincinnati. And as I said, uh, in this case, we got this right. This is from the Indiana Appellate Court, uh, finding in favor of the insurer and uh, rejecting the arguments of the insured. And, and, and among the arguments was the period of restoration language in the Cincinnati policy. Uh, this, this court joins the Ohio and California Intermediate Courts of Appeals. Uh, finding in favor of insurers. So that was three intermediate courts of appeals from state courts, which tell you a whole lot more of than the federal courts, frankly, do. But now, as we talked about, Massachusetts, Ohio, and others are coming online, uh, highest courts giving answers. Dan, anything to add on the Indiana Repertory Theater versus Cincinnati case? I think that's it. Okay. And that brings us to a not COVID case, uh, which is where our gap in our predictions, sure to go wrong, has widened. Uh, Dan is 97, 16 and 7, and I am 95, 18 and 7. This was a Henry versus Good Samaritan. And if I may add, our much of our discussion about the SCOTUS cases were from Dan's column for tomorrow. My discussion of this is going to be uh, a subject of my Chicago Daily Law Bulletin column that will come out on Wednesday that I, that I wrote this morning. This is Campbell versus Good Samaritan that we discussed on episode 69 uh, that dealt with whether the dismissal pursuant to settlement of a doctor also led to the dis also should lead to the dismissal or summary judgment in favor of his employer. Um, and the court held that it did because of some rather sloppy pleading, or as the court called it, not model, not a model of pleading right. uh, <laughs> by the by the plaintiff in this case that can, didn't set out in separate counts the allegations against the institution and the allegations against the doctor. Uh, under Illinois law, an institution, a medical institution, can be liable directly for errors of its of its hospital staff, nurses, and so forth. Doctors can also be liable, and hospitals can be liable for the negligence of the doctors on an apparent agency, apparent agency theory under Gilbert versus Sycamore Memorial. Uh, and this court held that because of the way that it was pled, they only pled a vicarious theory. And because they settled with the doctor, even though it was for a low amount, uh, the, the doctor, the hospital was now out. Um, so a very interesting and important case there, even though it's unpublished. Dan, anything else to add on Campbell Henry versus Good Samaritan? I think that's it on that. So with that, let's come to our rule of the week, Dan. And why don't you tell us about the rule of the week? And the rule of the week, we've talked about it a couple of times previously, is, is the period of restoration that's in insurance policies. The lead up to the Massachusetts hearing was this would be front and center. 
but as we dis, uh, discussed, it was barely discussed, not much by the insured and not much by the insurer. Uh, I think yeah, the insurer Gregory, wanted to run away because of the error they made. Right. Uh, absolutely. And I think Laura Gregory and others expected it to be addressed head on. Uh, so what is the period of restoration? Travelers describes it on their website as the time frame during which these coverages apply is referred to as the period of restoration. The period of restoration begins when covered damage forces a business to suspend its operations and it ends when the coverage damage is or reasonably could have been repaired. Uh, the Massachusetts argument the insurer council did address difference uh, from smoke or carbon monoxide and restoring, uh, but not as eloquently as could have been. And we talked about that already. Um, and so that's the, the rule of week. Um, it does talk about period of suspension. There is language in some policies about <laughs> period of restoration uh, could be a partial suspension. And so again, in these cases, uh, like with takeout food that was at issue here, the, the reality is, is that there's not a complete suspension of operations. They're, they were still doing takeout. They, as soon as they can go back in, they did the business. So that's the period of restoration. And uh, we, uh, the, the Indiana uh, theater case uh, did talk about period of restoration head on um, and probably expect to see other cases deal with this uh, going forward at, at the highest courts, as, as we talked about. Indeed, it's an important concept in property coverage um, to understand the period of restoration. So uh, with that, uh, thank you for joining us this week on COVID week uh, on the Podium and Panel podcast. And we'll be back next week with another episode. Okay. Um, I'm going to, my computer's running low, but I'll see okay. what I can do and I'll let you know where we stand. At least we got through it. Yeah. Um, and yeah. we'll, ugh, this is turning into a nightmare. Uh, we've got to get this. We've got to get this worked out. So I agree. I want to. I want to work on it this afternoon. I'll get. I'll get you an update. No hurry. I'm going to be busy. Thanks a lot. Hey, have, have right. a have a great have a great week. Thank you. You too. Be well. Talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host Pat Eckler. We thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.